Well, good morning. You may be seated. I'm delighted to be with you this morning. And uh, I love that last song. Part of why I love it is it is a tender reminder that the Lord wastes nothing in our lives, that he literally is in control and he uses everything that we encounter to conform us into the image of his beloved son. If that doesn't lower your anxiety level, I don't know what else will. I, I have nothing else for you, but that's what it does for me. And uh, speaking of wasting nothing, he has not wasted this season of COVID that we're in because we as a church got to buy a tent. Uh, and how about that? So uh, we as a church see how you get to do things. And uh, outside, we have about 20, 25 folks sitting under the tent. I went out there and greeted them a while ago, and I thought, you know, there's a part of me that would like to be preaching outside in perfect weather where they're sitting. So um, anyway, so uh, there's our tent deal. It's got people in it, and so we're excited about that. And part of the borough came back this week, so slowly but surely getting there, and uh, we're grateful for all that. Well, if you would, uh, this morning, turn with me to Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 41, starting in verse 41. Let me, let me remind us where we've been here. This is, was pretty amazing this week as I thought through this. We as a church have slowly but surely walked with Jesus on what we have called this mini-series. That's not really a mini-series. It's 437 verses called The Road Less Traveled. Scholars call it the travel narrative of Jesus. It comprises 35% of the entire book of Luke. And we've doing so, we've been able to get up close and personal and see the life and mission of Jesus. It's been an incredible journey for us as a church. It starts, it goes through Luke 9.51 to Luke 19.48. It starts with these words in Luke 19:51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now his goal was not to just take a long road trip in, in a non-straight way to Jerusalem. His goal, his divine purpose, was to obey the plan that he and the Father had agreed upon, had put in place to be taken up, via Jerusalem, through the cross, taken up to glory, to sit at the right hand of the Father, to put his enemies below him as a footstool. And it is that place of power that he will start when he returns for his second time. So that's what is happening here. And then 426 verses later, it ends with Luke 19:48, which will be the last verse of our text today. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. And that's what we've been doing. Ten months of the life of Jesus, we have been hanging on his very words. In this uh, travel narrative, we've seen Jesus send out the 72 to preach the kingdom of God. We've seen the Good Samaritan. We've been taught to pray as the disciples were taught. We've been taught about persistent prayer. We've been taught incredible truths about money and stewardship and possessions. We've, 
we've talked about faithfulness is more important than flash. We've been taught how to seek first the kingdom of God. And about the only way really into the kingdom of God, which is repentance and faith in Christ alone. We've been told that discipleship is costly. There's a cost to following Christ. We learn about two sons. Both were lost, but we saw where one son came home, back to his father. We saw this little rich man prove that he is saved, prove that salvation literally came to him by not only how his life changed, but how generous he became. We saw a, a man that was raised from the dead. We saw blind men healed. And we've traveled this road starting in Samaria. Samura. I was thinking Samyrna. <laughs> Samaria to Galilee to Bethany to Jericho and to every nook and cranny in the country of Israel. Jesus went there and we got to walk with him. But today... We have come to the end of the road of this travel narrative. Here's what amazes me, two things. Jesus, once he set his face to Jerusalem, he never wavered. It was a beautiful picture of a long obedience in the same direction. And then secondly for us, folks, look at me here. We have been equipped to walk with him. If you got nothing else the rest of your Christian life, this is, this is more than most Christians around the world get in a lifetime in terms of equipping of what it means to be a follower of Christ. So I am thankful for that. Dr. Daryl Bach, our Luke expert, puts it this way. The journey completed now. Jesus now turns to meet his fate in Jerusalem. The loser is not Jesus, but those who reject him, and we'll see that this morning in our text. But before we do, I want to I take a minute to give us some context of where we're at. I want us to understand Monty's text last week, which was full of adoration for Jesus, and how quickly it flipped to, uh, how do you say that, I, Thank you, Kyle. I actually practiced that this week. Annihilation. How beautiful was that? Thank you for your help. I just wanted to seem humble this morning. So before we move forward with our text this morning, let's backtrack a little bit and get the full picture of how we got here and what's going on. So if you remember a few weeks ago in our text, like a few weeks in terms of the life of Jesus, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead in the town of Bethany, which was only a couple miles from Jerusalem. And folks, as it should have, this went viral. Word of mouth spread like crazy. And it was at this time that, that because everyone knew of this resurrection, it was this point the crowds began to grow exponentially. Add to that, at this time, a few weeks before the Passover, you know, the Passover was a time where the Jews celebrated uh, and commemorated uh, their freedom from Egypt, yearly came into Jerusalem. The, the pilgrims from all over the world who were Jews came in for a week during that time. And so we have two million people, uh, experts have said, traveling to Jerusalem. So the crowds are growing. 
crowds are growing in Jerusalem. John tells us that Jesus arrived in Bethany at Lazarus' house on a Saturday before the Passover. Now, context, that is six days, six days before his crucifixion. So he got there on a Saturday, and then on a Sunday, the massive crowds heard this, and they came flowing out of the eastern gate, which is, which is on the east wall of Jerusalem. They came through that eastern gate to see Jesus, and they wanted to see with their own eyes the man who had been raised from the dead, Lazarus. And then on Monday, uh, and this tells us this in John, particularly Matthew, other places in our Bible, on Monday, Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey. That was Monty's text last week. We call that the triumphal entry. Jesus is in complete control here. Remember that? He planned this entry into Jerusalem because he actually wrote Zechariah 9-9 that predicted he would ride in on a colt or a donkey. So most of Israel, they've either seen Jesus or they've heard about Jesus during his three years of ministry. But we know this, up to now, Jesus has avoided the crowds. And he, over and over, we saw that in our text. He slipped away from the crowd. He went away from the crowd. He ducked away out of the crowd. Why? But often the text tells us because it was not his time. Now, it is his time. Now, he is not avoiding the crowds, as we saw last week. As Bonnie unpacked that text, one of the things we need to remember is on this triumphal entry, up to 200,000 people lined the road coming from down from the Mount of Olives, this Roman paved road, all the way into Jerusalem that ended at the temple. And what were they screaming? Praises for Jesus. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, we got to ask a question. Why are they so excited with adoration and praise toward Jesus? Well, I think the first thing I would say, it is really difficult for us to sort of grasp the mood that was in Jerusalem and the nation of Israel at this moment in history. They had no doubt, we know this, history tells us this, they had been looking for a Messiah, and the more and more they looked at Jesus, they thought he may be a prime candidate to be just that. But there's a problem. One is they misidentified who Jesus was. They had identified him wrongly, and when you identify Jesus wrongly, what happens is you create not the God of the Bible, you create the God that you would like in your own mind and heart, and what happens then is that you look at God, and God doesn't do what you think he should do. If you were God, and you say, you know what, if that's really how God is, I'm out. So misidentifying who God is both in his justice and love and mercy and in his severity and in his judgment. If you misidentify him, you get in trouble. And that's what happened here. Matthew 21 tells us, when asked, who is this? Who is this man, Jesus? The crowds adoring him said what? He is a prophet from Nazareth. Folks, he's more than a prophet. He is, but he's more than a prophet. Secondly, Luke 19, 37 last week says he was praised for his miracles. So they like this potential of this 
powerful religious prophet, and they love what they got from Jesus, his miracles, but they didn't see him truly for who he was. And then secondly, I think they had false expectations. There is a, maybe I'll put it this way, there's a messianic fever or fever in Jerusalem. Their definition of the Messiah, though, is much different than God's definition of the Messiah. Yes, hundreds of thousands of people have lined this road coming into Jerusalem, screaming the praises of Jesus, but they think Jesus is about to be their political and their social savior. They hated, folks. They were under a cruel Roman's rule. They hated the Romans with a passion. And Jesus, they thought, with all this following and all this intellect and all this ability to teach truths, they thought he would be the one to lead the revolt, have Israel free from the Roman rule, crush Rome, and bring peace to Israel. Here's what happened, though. They realized at some point, and we're going to see that, that Jesus was not who they thought he was. And when they did, they flipped on a dime. They went from adoration, driven by what is it in, what is in it for me, to joining the religious leaders. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. They had adoration on Monday during the triumphal entry, but they were silent on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. And then these same folks by Friday had flipped the script totally. And Luke 23, 18 says, they screamed, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a murderer. Pontius Pilate tries to talk them out of that. Their response to him in Luke 23, 21, crucify him. For a third time, Pilate said to them, Look, I've examined all the evidence. This man has done no wrong. This man has done nothing deserving death. And their response to Pilate in Luke 23, 23 says, they demanded with loud cries that he should be crucified. And so they were given what they wanted. Now, how in the world... <laughs> How in the world could the Jewish people come to such antithetical conclusions, opposite conclusions, in a matter of four days? How could they on Monday scream the praise of Jesus, and by Friday they demand that he be crucified? I don't know about you, but sometimes I read my Bible, and what happens to me, I'm looking at them, and I'm going, they're dumb. They're idiots. How could they do that? And at the same time, what I'm really thinking is I would never, what, ever do that. That's a dangerous way to read our Bibles, by the way. I'm not promoting that. I'm just being transparent. Here's how they did it, and here's how we can do it. When we misidentify who Jesus is, Plus, we expect him to do things for us that he never promised he would do. We expect him to do what we would do if we were God. Things go south quickly. 
I, I cannot tell you, I do believe that I could write a small book, chapter after chapter after chapter, story after story after story of those who I've known in my 38 years of being a Christian who have, life didn't go the way they planned. Marriage is hard. They lost a job. Uh, kids rebelled, right? They got hurt. They, they, they got they got all out of shape about something in the church that had nothing to do with the core doctrines of Christ and his word. You, you get that? And then they got mad at God. You let me down. They take a scripture out of context and they claim it and they name it, but it doesn't come true. You know what they say? You, if that's who you are and if that's how you treat me, I'm out. And then they disappear. That's what happened to them. And folks, we, we are in danger of that. Don't think it can't happen to you. So, so we have adoration to annihilation. And here's what Jesus did here. Jesus interpreted all of this correctly in the sense that he saw it for what it was. Yes, they were praising him, but it wasn't because they were praising him because of it was exactly who he was. They had misidentified him, and they had false expectations of him. He certainly wasn't their savior from Rome or to get them out of Rome's cruelty. And because of that, he interpreted it well, and he said, You have rejected me. And here's what we're going to see. Jesus' response to their rejection of him. Let me read our text for us this morning. Does that help us get to a good place? Here we go. Verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation." So Jesus responds to their rejection of him and who he really was with sobbing and soothsaying. Soothsaying is another word for prophecy or predicting the future. And in verse 41, we see it says, he looked upon Jerusalem. He looked upon Jerusalem and the scriptures tell us he wept. In John 11, at Lazarus' funeral... It uses a word wept in the Greek language. But that word in John 11 is just tears, a, a sadness. This word is the strongest Greek word for grief. He is sobbing. It means sobbing or heaving or a deep guttural grief. It means, it means lament. Jesus here is racked with agony. He wept because of their rejection of him as their king and savior. But he wept just as much because he knew what was coming for them. 
God's own very people were now under judgment. And destruction would come. And we'll see that in a minute. I don't know about you, but I can... I know there are times, if we've lived long enough, if you're young, um, this may not have happened yet, but there are times when you have wept like that. Have you not? Not with me. Yeah. I'm talking about guttural, sobbing, heaving, dry heaving, fetal position. You ever been there? One of my first times, so I was 27, my dad had passed. My dad had just quit drinking. Two months, been an alcoholic all his life. And he died. I arrive at the funeral home. I walk up to his casket. About just a few family members with me. And I laid over him sobbing. Yes, I was sobbing uncontrollably because I was sad that he was gone. I was sad about the past and all that I missed and all that I needed from him that I didn't get, that the bottle got. <laughs> but I was just as sad of what, what I'd hoped to get <laughs> for the future. That's what's going on here with Jesus. He is sad they've rejected him, but he is also sobbing because of what is about to happen Happen. To Israel. Verse 42, it says, You would have known the things that would have brought you peace. If you would have known the things that brought you peace. And verse 44 tells us, Because you did not know, you did not recognize that God in the flesh had visited you. I was right there among you, and you did not recognize me. And now it's too late. That shouldn't surprise us because in John chapter 1, the Apostle John writes these words. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. He came to his own people, the Israelites. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become a child of God. Who were not born, not of blood, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Man, there's a huge takeaway for us. If you and I know Christ, think about the grace. The grace that God would allow us to see him for who he really is and recognize him and run to him and repent and place our trust in him. The soothsaying of prophecy or predicting the future comes in 43 and 44. Jesus predicts the future here. Here is the future of Israel. Because you have rejected me, here's what's going to happen. And it came true, folks. I'd love for you to do some reading on this this week. In your own time, in 70 A.D., the destruction of Jerusalem that Jesus speaks of here, 30 or 40 years later, took place. It's known in history as the Siege of Jerusalem, led by the future emperor of Rome, Titus. It began 
April 14th, 70 AD, three days before the start of Passover that year, and four months later in September, it was over. Josephus, the famous Jewish historian, writes this, but for all the rest of the wall, talking about the wall around the temple, around the city, it was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was left nothing to make those that came either believe it had ever been inhabited. You know what Jesus said would happen? You wouldn't even, a stone wouldn't be laying on top of a stone. Josephus confirms that. One writer said, 40 years later, the stones that made up the city of Jerusalem lay in ruins screaming of the judgment of Israel's unbelief. And that's what Jesus has said last week in verse 40 when he said, these very stones would cry out, and they did. Josephus continues, he says, while the temple was burning, there was neither pity for age nor rank was shown. The Jewish people were massacred. Hundreds of thousands of bodies taken out of the city through the eastern gate to be buried. Made me think how should have the Jews responded. What would it look like if they had responded well? Acts 2 tells us that. Peter had given his incredible sermon. He had, he had called people to repentance. He laid out this apologetic for who Jesus was, showing the people who he was, and here was the response. This is how the Jews should have responded. Peter writes, in, or Luke writes in Acts 2. Now when they heard this, Peter's gospel sermon, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Darrell Bach sums up this section with this quote. It's in your notes. What was a visitation for salvation has become a visitation for condemnation. So the time for sobbing and soothsaying has ended for Jesus. And here's what happens. As he goes back Monday night, other passages tell us he goes back to Bethany. He goes back to the house of Lazarus to spend the night. There was some, And look, it's fair to say that he had had an exhausting day. Would you, would you not think? But he had seen something that day that he had on his mind that he was going to address the next day, Tuesday, as he went back to Jerusalem. And verses 45 and 40 through 48 tells us exactly what he had seen and how he addressed it. And I've titled it Anger and Animosity, verses 44 through 45. Verse 45 says, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. Now, in the other Gospels, they give us a lot more detail. So I would encourage you to read those. But here we just get a picture. This is Jesus' famous or infamous time when he got angry and he's flipping the tables. And I hear from newscasters to non-Christians and everybody in between using this as justification for every kind of evil in the world. Well, Jesus got mad and flipped tables. <laughs> That's not a correct implication. 
See, Jesus was acting on what he had seen in the temple probably the day before and other times when he was in Jerusalem. And it tells us he enters the temple of the living God where God was being blasphemed and desecrated. Corruption, folks, was everywhere in a place that was supposed to be pure and sacred. And God is clearly showing us here, as clear as it gets, that his primary concern is not Rome and its injustice to Israel. His primary concern is how his people are not worshiping him well. His primary concern has to do with his relationship with his people. So, here's a picture of the temple that I'll put up here. It, it, look, it's a massive place. That's a remake of it. Obviously, it's gone now. But the temple in its surrounding grounds was a pretty huge place. It had colonnades, it had housings around it for the Pharisees and other religious leaders to live. It had buildings around it. Jerusalem was a population anywhere, experts say, between 600,000 and a million at the time. But this massive temple, it's called the Second Temple, was built by Herod for the Jewish people. Uh, it, it, it sort of had layers as you entered it. On the outer layer, you had the court of the Gentiles, where Gentiles, converts, could come, or they could come and interact. And then as you went farther in, it had the court of women, where Jewish women could go. And then it had the court of the Israelites, where Jewish men could go. And in that court, there was an amazing gate called the Knacker's Gate, or Nacre's Gate, and it was made out of Corinthian bronze. It was so massive, it took 20 men to open and close. Just to give you a picture of this massive place. Then as you went further in, there was the court of the priest. And then finally, there was the Holy of Holies, where only the priest could go and where sacrifices took place. And during Passover, maybe God, a quarter million, quarter million sacrifices of slaughtered animals. So Jesus enters the court of Gentiles on the east side of the city of Jerusalem, and he was livid. He was so angry at what he saw. It had been turned into, if we use country terms, it had been turned into a massive flea market <laughs> on steroids where they were selling animals needed for the Passover sacrifice. And again, up to a quarter million animals being bought and sold there. Just, just put your mind around this of what he was seeing. They were selling all kind of trinkets like you were at the world's largest state fair. <laughs> Money changers. Because you remember we had people from all over the world were coming there to get the currency for their particular money. So the money changers flipping all kind of coins. And, and in doing so, they would charge an absorbent price to do the exchange. So everybody's making the money. It's sort of like when you go to the airport. You ever bought lunch at the airport? Yeah. A $9 lunch in Murfreesboro is $23 at the airport. That's what's going on here. They had shops with you could buy wine and salt. And here's what would happen. If you brought your own animal, this is kind of corruption going on. You had to bring your animal in there and get it inspected by a religious person. And, and typically... Uh, 
for the most part, they would reject the cleanliness or purity of your animal. Why? So you would have to buy one from them. And the one you bought from them was ten times the price that you would pay in the countryside. This was run by the high priest Annas and Caiaphas. And they were getting filthy rich off of this setup. They actually sold Passover franchises, if you would. <laughs> so everybody that was in there selling and exchanging and making money were taking a little bit off and, and greasing the palms of these two chief priests. Jesus calls them thieves. What's happening here is robbery and extortion by the priest. Add to that was packed. Thousands of people at a time. Not only massive amount of animals, but what do animals do? They use the bathroom. It stunk. Some of the worst criminals in Israel were there, trying to take advantage of people. They had no conscience when it came to the poor, one historian said. He went on to give an example. He said, if a dove which a poor person would bring a dove to sacrifice, would cost 10 cents in our world. They were sold for $10 there. So they took advantage of the poor and then added to that prostitution. And Folks, this was a vile and evil place that was supposed to be sacred for the worship of the living God. Here's what we've done in Western Christianity. We have made our implication and that we can't sell pies that ladies of the church make for missions because Jesus got mad and flipped tables. No. If we sold pies for $400 a piece and Monty and I were getting paid $200, that's the point here. It's not a bad idea. Okay. This was the poster child of corrupted religion. Jesus was so angry at what he saw. And as I studied that this week, you know what I felt? I felt angry too. Jesus says, you have corrupted my house and my glory. So I thought to myself, how does one person shut all this down? Whether you got hundreds of people or thousands of people, how does one person completely shut it down? And again, Matthew 21 and Mark 11 give us more details of this. But what it tells us is that Jesus went to work. His authority, his power, his physicality, he flipped table after table after table. Those other passages that speak of this said they... They left and took nothing with them. Chickens flying, animals screaming, dust coming up, corns scattering everywhere. I don't know how long it took him, but I want to see that when I get to heaven, what it looked like. Jesus was not playing, and nobody tried to stop him. They knew better. I, I have to believe there was something about his 
him being God that was evident in this display. The Lord hates perverted worship. When church leaders exploit the people for their own gain, he hated it then and he hates it today. Folks, this is called righteous anger. And for most of you who've been here a while, you know that my story is the son of an alcoholic. The son of an alcoholic typically have rage problems, and I'm a recovering rage of holic and rageaholic, and God has done an incredible work there. But working through this book when I was 27 years old, it's called the Anger Workbook. Uh, it's still available for those of you who struggle in this area. And I've taken probably 30 men through this book over the years. Uh, one of the first things that grabbed me around the throat was this. The writer says that I, we, get angry when our own glory is robbed. And that God, Jesus here, in this situation is angry because his father's glory was robbed. What a difference. It's the difference between sinful anger and righteous anger. Chip Dodd puts it this way. He says, righteous anger is a caring feeling telling us that something matters. It exposes what we value and expresses our willingness to do what is required to reach that value. As Jesus turned the tables over, in the temple and drove out thieves from a sacred place, he showed the full passion and desire to make what had become rotten pure again. After he cleaned up his house, verse 47 says he, I love this, he taught in the temple daily. Right back to work. Maybe he gave it a few hours, let the dust settle. Maybe he came back the next morning. But the next three days before they arrested him to take him to the cross, he went back to faithfulness. Folks, I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt that I would, have, <laughs> I would not have responded that way. And what was he teaching? The same message he'd always been teaching. The next verse in the next chapter, the first verse tells us that Jesus was preaching the gospel. And I thought, what is, in, what is important to a man is what a man talks about when he knows he's going to die. Last words are lasting words. And we see that here with Jesus. And it says, tells us in the rest of the text, that the chief priests and scribes, they wanted so bad to kill him. It was amazing to me that the Jews, what they wanted was for Jesus to attack Rome. And what Jesus did was attack the religious leaders. If Jesus were to come back today, the first place he would not visit would be Washington, D.C. See, that's how we get it twisted. The first place he would visit would be the churches. The churches that distort him, lie about him, take advantage of the people, teach them spiritual untruths, that's where he would show up first. That's where he showed up here. Again, the leaders wanted to kill him, but he was so popular 
that everyone was hanging on every word. And folks, in a matter of three days, that all changes. We know they paid Judas off. We know they manipulated the crowds. And the next thing we see are the crowds are demanding that Jesus be killed. This morning, as we ask the question, so what? God, there's a, there's a lot there, is there not? I wanted to ask you to consider a couple of things. Are you seeing and identifying the real Jesus? <laughs> like, like, who is he to you? And if you, if you believe things uh, that he's going to do for you that he's never promised you to do, that's, that's one. And then secondly, maybe you can ask yourself, you know, what do I get angry about? Because as God transforms us, what he really wants from us is that we love what he loves and we hate what he hates. And we get angry about what he gets angry about, God's glory. And that's a righteous anger. There's other implications, but ask yourself the question, so what this morning? you we love your word we're thankful for this journey we've been able to take as a church together 437 verses that identify you as God in the flesh identify you as authority identify you for who you are what you do why you came and why you deserve our 100% allegiance Lord, I pray in the days ahead, in the months ahead, in the years ahead, you would, you would show us how this journey in your word um, has changed us, has affected us, and how we think about God, how we think about ourselves, and how we think about others. We love you. I'm grateful again. And everyone said, Amen.